My name is Jose Alvarez. I teach at New York University School of Law. This is the first part of my third lecture on the Spaghetti Bowl of International Investment Agreements. In my last lecture, I described how U.S. investment treaties have evolved over time. But the U.S., like many states, does not tend to terminate its old FCNs or its old bits. It takes a lot of effort to negotiate such pacts and get them approved through each state's legislative processes. And once these treaties are concluded, political and economic interests become aligned and often dependent on them. Economists are not wrong to describe economic pacts like bits as, quote, sticky deals that generate market expectations that often become hard to dislodge. Of course, as mentioned, U.S. bits have a termination clause that prevents each state from ending them for a period of 10 years and that allow businesses to rely on them to, for a further 10-year period. While some states have nonetheless terminated their old bits, most have not, even when one or both parties to a bit has moved on to different model bit techs. In the usual case, as each country adopts a new model bit and new treaties based on them, it just adds any new treaties to the mix of treaties it already has in place. Newer investment agreements that recalibrate the respective rights of foreign investors and host states also exist alongside traditional investor protective ones like early U.S. bids. This explains why the contemporary world of some 3,000 bilateral or regional international investment agreements have treaties with very different content. The current IIA universe contains treaties that look like all the agreements that I described in my last lecture. They look sometimes like the Germany-Pakistan bit of 1959 or of old post-World War II FCN treaties. Some of them look like early U.S. bits, like the U.S.-Argentina bit, as well as agreements that look like the U.S. model of 2004, 2012, and, well, parts of the USMCA as well. International investment agreements in force today may be replicas of any of those. They may contain unique combinations of provisions that appear in one or more model bits, and some may have subtle variations of any of the investment guarantees and state exceptions that I introduced in my last lecture. Even today, some states continue to negotiate treaties that are as protective of property rights as were early U.S. bits while other states have now decided to stop negotiating investment treaties altogether. And there are so still some states, but admittedly very few of them, like Brazil, that have never ratified a single bit of any kind and seem to have no intention of changing their minds. So this last lecture does three things. First, I will describe the diverse contents of IIAs through select examples of their key provisions, and introduce another factor that contributes to the regime's complexity, the investment law case law produced under ISDS. Second, I will spell out some of the criticisms of these treaties and of investor state dispute settlement, or ISDS. And this explains the evolution of investment agreements over time. And third, I will briefly introduce 
some of the reforms that are now being considered to respond to the investment regime's perceived legitimacy deficits. So first, diverse investor rights, diverse state defenses, and diverse arbitral interpretations of both. So here's an introduction. And the first part introduces the different definitions of scope, that is, what is covered investment. Anyone who looks at international investment agreements now, in effect, will soon discover that the subject of these lectures, investment, does not have a uniform or firm meaning. As discussed, or at least introduced in my last lecture, the circular definition of investment in early U.S. bits is typical. Those bits define investment unhelpfully as every form of investment. Even the drafters of the ICSID Convention, despite extensive discussion of the term investment during the negotiating time, opted not to define that term in the actual text, but left it up to states to indicate the classes of, quote, investment disputes, close quote, that they would submit to arbitration. Most international investment agreements follow the trend set by failed efforts to negotiate the multilateral rules for the protection of property that I mentioned in my first lecture. Most apply to an exceedingly broad notion of protected legal interests. Many say that they protect, quote, every form of asset and then proceed to enumerate non-exclusive examples of those assets. Some contain an exhaustive and not simply an illustrative list of protected assets, but even then, such lists are so expansive that they do not produce clear guidance. Some lists may include, for example, an enterprise, close quote, an equity security in an enterprise, or its debts, along with loans and other interests associated with an enterprise. The NAFTA, like a number of international investment agreements, specifically excludes, to be sure, from its definition of investment, some things like a mere commercial contract for the sale of goods or services or extension of credit in connection with a commercial transaction. While international investment agreements may make clear whether they extend only prospectively to future capital flows or sometimes, like in the U.S. international investment agreements, they also include existing investments, even though some of them are clear about that, they may be less clear about whether their protection extends only to foreign direct investment or, or also to portfolio investment, such as pass, passively held stock, not giving its owner any kind of control over an enterprise. International investment agreements may not even clarify what, whether their protected enterprises need to be organized to make a profit. They do not define, in other words, what an enterprise is. This lack of clarity in the definition of investment means that in practice, investor state arbitrators often have considerable discretion to decide whether the legal interest that is asserted by the claimant before them is subject to treaty protection. In the absence of clear exclusions from the definition of investment, arbitral rulings have found that it can include, for example, thousands of Italian bondholders seeking to present their mass claims against the government of Argentina in the wake of that country's sovereign debt restructuring in the 1990s. See Abaclat v. Argentina. Some say that investment includes a commercial arbitration award that has not been enforced by a local court in India. See White Industries v. India. Some have said that a trademark used to sell cigarettes, as in Philip Morris v. Uruguay, 
can be a protected interest. Or that a long-term concession contract for the operation of a water and sewage system is also an investment. See Bywater Gulf v. Tanzania. Investor claimants have been ingenious in finding ways to describe their claims of harm as violations of treaties that protect investments. And states have sometimes been quite surprised by arbitral interpretations that agree with those ingenious interpretations. Starting with Cellini v. Morocco and extending to rulings like Mitchell v. Congo, however, some investor state tribunals have pushed back. This is by no means all of them, but those tribunals have taken a more restrictive view. Those cases ruled that the ICSID Convention, notwithstanding the absence of a definition of the word investment, imposes its own requirement, distinct from any contained in the definition of investment in a bit. And they argue that what might properly be considered investment subject to ICSID arbitration is subject to a separate determination. An annulment committee in Mitchell v. Congo ruled that a legal consulting firm in the Congo failed to satisfy the ICSID Convention's double-barrel test, that is, once in the bit, once in ICSID, you have to satisfy the definition of investment in both barrels. The Mitchell ruling found, consistent with the Cellini case, that under the ICSID Convention, investment requires four prerequisites. The commitment of capital or resources, a certain duration, the assumption of economic risk, and some contribution to the economic development of the host state. Needless to say, these four criteria are not completely clear and subject to considerable discretion in and of themselves. Other tribunals have refused to follow the Cellini-Mitchell line of cases, and in any case, the double-barrel test for satisfying the meaning of investment does not apply to other ICSID forums, such as Uncentral. Tribunals also differ on whether the host state's national laws play a role in what constitutes protected investment. Some tribunals have found, depending on the language in the treaty, that only investments that are made, quote, in accordance with the host state's laws, close quote, and for example, not established by bribery, can be a protected interest under a bid. So, the, ver the very fact that the subject matter of international investment law namely what constitutes investment to begin with, does not have a single answer, is an indication of just how fragmented, inconsistent the regime is. The international investment regime does not have a single set of rules or a single overarching institution. It lacks the trade regime set of covered agreements or its single double-tiered dispute settlement mechanism or its permanent brick-and-mortar institution called the WTO with thousands of bureaucrats that is located in Geneva. What we today call the international investment regime has grown piecemeal over time. It consists of a set of treaties that, as I described in my last lecture, can be different over time, even with respect to the same nation. Never mind how different they are among the 180 states that are parties to today at least one bilateral investment treaty. Those different treaties are subject to distinct lines of arbitral authority. The combination of diverse international investment agreements and fragmented case law under them produces a welter of obligations. For some, the relevant image is a spaghetti bowl 
where the melange represents not only diverse pacts between different states, but ever-rising numbers of public arbitral rulings, none of which are required to be consistent with one another. The contents of international investment agreements typically falls into certain categories that I introduced in my last lecture. So now, let me talk about those typical categories to illustrate how different versions of investor rights may make a difference. The investor protections in the PowerPoint include rights that are based on an absolute if vague standard. Aliens are supposed to receive FET, free transferred rights, the protection of an umbrella clause, and customer international law protections like the international minimum standard and the whole rules insistence on prompt, adequate, and effective compensation if expropriated. All of those are absolute in theory. No matter how others in a host state are treated, you're supposed to accord them those rights. Other rights typically included in investment agreements, the general right not to be discriminated or to get national or MFN treatment, are relative rights. That is, proving that these rights have been violated is dependent on a comparison between the protected investor and somebody else. These relative rights require demonstrating that a foreign investor is relatively less well off than either nationals of the host state or nationals of another nation that it does business in the host state. But the difference between absolute and relative rights is not a firm binary. For arbitral interpreters looking for shortcuts, they can determine that a state has violated a vague guarantee like FET or has inflicted a denial of justice. For them, it may be just easier to show if the investor proves that it has been less favorably treated than somebody else. Although investment protections can be put in these typical categories suggested by absolute relative, make no mistake, there is no more agreement on what each of these rights means than there is on what exactly is protected investment. Both absolute and relative investment protect protections come in all shapes and sizes. Their texts vary with the particular BIT or IIA. As I described in my last lecture, the contents of U.S. treaties differ over time in terms of the substantive and procedural or remedial rights accorded to foreign investors. For the U.S., as I showed in my last lecture, investors' rights vary depending on whether the underlying treaty was concluded on the basis of the U.S. strongly investor-protective early model treaties of the 1980s, and therefore look like, like the U.S.-Argentina bid, or whether it was based on one or more provisions found in the NAFTA of 1994, its successor, the USMCA of 2018, or the U.S. model of 2004 or 2012. But the, the spaghetti bowl of international investment agreements results not only because they are the product of different model bits. Even treaties based on a particular model text may differ from that model and each other because all treaties are ultimately the product of unique negotiations whose outcomes vary with the relative negotiating power of the state parties involved. A particular investment agreement may omit one or more rights contained in the model from which it was drafted. This was the case with the omission of FET from the U.S.-Japan FCN, as we've seen. In the course of a negotiation, in pursuit of a comprehensive free trade pact, an FTA, that contains many important trade or intellectual rights provisions in its different chapters, that treaty's investment chapter may be subject to considerable trade-offs, 
to secure those other rights in those other chapters. As a result, the investment chapters in FTAs may be a melange of a number of states' model texts. A particular treaty may come to look like none of the model texts used by its state parties. Some formulations of typical investor rights may be unique to a particular investment treaty because a particular negotiator, for example, insists that a typical reference to, quote, full protection and security should be written a little differently this time. Let's call it continuous protection and security, close quote. Sometimes changes like that in language are introduced for cosmetic reasons. Maybe it makes the negotiator feel good that they've introduced a new language. They may even emerge as a result of faulty translations of the treaty and with no evidence that anyone thought that a modest change in wording of a principle that is drawn from customary international law, like full protection and security, would actually make a real difference as applied. As all lawyers know, that's a dangerous assumption, particularly in a context where the plain meaning of text is given far more significance than its formal negotiating history. So now let's proceed to look at different versions of national treatment and event and see how they may make a difference. So some of that language appears uh, in a PowerPoint that accompanies this. And some of the language in treatment on national treatment and event may say treatment in similar circumstances. Some might say treatment in like cases. Some might say treatment no less favorable than. Uh, different versions of national treatment and MFN. So differences emerge even with long-standing investor protections that have previously appeared in old FCNs. While clauses providing for national MFN treatment are relatively homogeneous, they differ, as I've just said, on the margins. Not even these provisions adhere to a single prescribed text. In the hands of investor state arbitrators, the textual differences suggested by this PowerPoint can lead to different results. Some arbitrators have suggested, for example, that a like cases inquiry requires looking at whether the foreign investor and the comparator, the national investor, allegedly getting better treatment, compete by producing products that are treated as substitutes in the market. A like cases inquiry, as required under the WTO, would look at whether both businesses produce like products. This may be a very different form of national treatment or MFN inquiry as to whether the two businesses are in like circumstances, not because they produce competitive products, but because they engage in the same or a similar line of business and ought to receive, in principle, comparable regulatory treatment. And even when two arbitral tribunals agree that the relevant inquiry under a particular bit is whether the foreign investor and the national comparator engage in the same line of business, treaty interpreters, interpreters may differ on how specific that inquiry should be. In one case, one tribunal insisted that both the foreign investor and the comparator must engage in selling cigarettes marked for export. That was the line of business. While another tribunal, looking at a comparable claim, said that all that was required but was that they were both retailers and sold products. It also seems to be the case that when arbitrators are directed at examining like circumstances, quote, quote, this can lead to a more fulsome inquiry as to whether differences in how two like businesses are treated 
And this can be justified by environmental or labor concerns. If you go this way, therefore, if the difference between two investors and an investor and a foreigner, for instance, therefore do not violate the NFN or MFN clause based on these environmental or labor concerns. These distinctions demonstrate why such claims are often seen as generating fact-specific inquiries that are difficult to reconcile jurisprudentially. Arbitrators also differ on what they consider to be a less favorable result. Such fact-specific outcomes may make it difficult to reconcile one arbitral ruling with another. National treatment MFN clauses differ in other respects. Some clauses merely state that investors are owed the same treatment the host state extends to its own nationals or to nationals from any other state without saying more. Such clauses leave it to arbitrators to determine which aspects of doing business should receive such protections. Other national treatment MFN clauses may themselves indicate that they are limited to, quote, the operation of business. If that's the case, perhaps national treatment MFN doesn't apply to prevent discrimination on disposing a business. Some, like the U.S.-Argentina bit, apply national treatment MFN to both investment and a broad list of associated activities. This expansive protection leaves no doubt that a full range of business activities is subject to national treatment and MFN, from the making of contracts to acquiring or disposing of intellectual property. Some international investment agreements, but not all, state clearly that national or MFN treatment is a floor, not a ceiling, and that the investor and its associated activities are, in addition, entitled to any more favorable treatment granted under the state's laws or that state's other international obligations. We talked about this. This is Article 10 of the U.S.-Argentina bit, which guarantees such residual protection. And of course, even a strong national or MFN clause can be undermined in terms of the investor by particular sectoral exceptions made by a treaty party. The U.S.-Argentina bit's national treatment clause does not apply, with respect to the U.S., to a long list of highly regulated sectors that are enumerated in the protocol to that treaty. It includes air transportation, ocean and coastal shipping, banking, and insurance. Variations among the MFN guarantee often track the language used by national treatment clauses and vary accordingly. Some MFN clauses obligate a state to accord the same treatment as it accords investors or investments of any third state. Others spell out that the MFN commitment applies only, say, to the management, maintenance, use, enjoyment, or disposal of investments. But differences in outcomes emerging from the application of MFN clauses can also result from different lines of arbitral rulings. Many tribunals have applied the principle of expresso unis to mean that in principle, irrespective of difference in language, an MFN clause permits an investor to look at other bits concluded by its host state and import any provisions found in those other treaties that provide more favorable treatment. This could mean that an investor that finds an umbrella clause or an FET clause, for example, in one of those other bits could import such guarantees and use them to its own benefit, even if neither of those rights appears in the bit under which it is bringing its own claim. 
the ability to import such rights from one bit to another can effectively ratchet up investor protections and may make it impossible for a state to effectively narrow these rights in its subsequent bits so long as its treaties retain an MFN clause. The importation, though, of more favorable investor rights from one bit to another through the magic of MFN hit a snag when some investors attempted to use MFN clauses to draw from procedural benefits given in their host state's other bits. In Mefrazini v. Spain, involving an MFN clause in the Argentina-Spain bit, that treaty extended MFN to all matters governed by this agreement. The investor needed to wait under that treaty for 18 months while it pursued local remedies prior to resulting, resorting to arbitration. The investor sought to escape this 18-month delay by using the MFN clause in that other treaty in that treaty to reach into Spain's bit with Chile instead, which did not require an 18-month delay. The Mefrosini Tribunal agreed that the investor could use MFN to import a procedural aspect of another bit, and therefore the investor was successful in foregoing the 18-month delay through the magic of MFN. But other tribunals have since rejected the Mefrosini ruling and have rejected the use of MFN to import the import of procedural rules from other bits. These tribunals contend that the preconditions to arbitral jurisdiction cannot be bypassed in this fashion. Tribunals continue to disagree on this point, and for a time, controversies over the limits of the MFN clause have focused on whether Mefrosini was rightly or wrongly decided. But in 2016, the ruling in Ikhail v. Turkmenistan posed a far more fundamental challenge to the traditional way MFN clauses had previously been interpreted. That case involved the Turkey-Turkmenistan bit, whose MFN clause looked just like the U.S.-Argentina bit. That clause provided, and I quote, quote, each party shall accord to these investments once established treatment no less favorable than that accorded in similar situations to investments of its investors or to investors of any third party, whichever is the most favorable, close quote. The claimants sought to use this MFN clause, consistent with many prior cases, as a way to import other investor rights contained in bits that Turkmenistan had concluded with other states. Turkmenistan argued, however, that the need to find investments in, quote, similar situations required finding an investor that had actually been accorded better treatment from a third state, not merely because a clause in a treaty might so provide. Much to the surprise of defenders of the traditional view that MFN permits the importation of other bid clauses, the tribunal in that case agreed with Turkmenistan and refused to import a more beneficial bit provision without proof that actual discrimination had occurred. Whether other tribunals will follow this, this far narrower view of MFN that it was affirmed in this case remains to be seen. A lively academic debate has ensued among proponents of the older new interpretations of MFN clauses. But importantly, in the wake of these arbitral and scholarly disputes, some states have reacted by changing the language of their MFN clauses in their more recent treaties. 
Consider, for example, the MFN clause in the CETA text of 2018. This is between EU and Canada. Article 8.7 of CETA states, quote, Each party shall accord to an investor of the other party treatment it accords in like situations to investors of a third party. And then continues, quote, For greater certainty, the treatment referred to does not include procedures for the resolution of investment disputes between investors and states provided for in other international investment treaties and other trade agreements, substantive obligations in other international investment treaties and other trade agreements do not in themselves constitute quote-unquote treatment and thus cannot give rise to a breach of this article, absent measures adopted or maintained by a party pursuant to those obligations. The CETA's text rejects the Mefrazini ruling, and it seemingly embraces also the Turkmenistan ruling just discussed. This is likely to make MFN clauses in CETA much less useful to investor claimants. The CETA's text and the ruling in Turkmenistan also casts some doubt on the argument that MFN clauses progressively raise the standards of protection for investors while they multilateralize the investment regime and make its protections more uniform across international investment agreements. If investors can no longer secure better treatment by simply importing the best available bit clause in some other treaty, whether it deals with procedural rights or not, one tool for elevating investor protections across the bit universe is cut off. Now let's look at different versions of FET. There are far more variations among international investment agreements when it comes to the vague FET obligation. Consider the differences we've already seen with respect to FET clauses concluded by the U.S. over time. As the U.S. has gone from defining FET as being an independent right in addition to customary law to FET clauses that say that FET only means customary law to FET being eliminated in parts of the U.S. MCA, the motivation of the U.S. seems clear. It looks like the U.S. wants to narrow FET, which is, after all, the right that all too often has led not just to troublesome claims, but successful claims by investor claimants. Now, the difference between the U.S.'s clauses that say FET is equal to custom and clauses that say FET is in addition to custom, that difference may not seem all that significant. But for some investors, it has meant the difference between winning and losing a claim. An independent, self-standing FET clause, as is found in the U.S.-Argentina bit, and many other bits with similar language, provides investor lawyers with quite a number of arguments against state action. Rulings based on an independent FET clause have suggested, for example, that a respondent state's violation of its other international obligations, such as a WTO commitment, or even of its own law, is sufficiently unfair to violate FET. Such rulings motivated the U.S. in its later IIAs to clarify, as we've seen, that neither standing alone constitutes a violation of FET. Cases interpreting FET clauses, like the one in the U.S.-Argentina bit, have said, as did the tribunal in the Mir v. Ukraine, that an FET guarantee 
should not operate as a ceiling, but as a floor, not a broad independent right to be treated fairly and equitably might justify a claim by an investor that the state's breach of contract violates FET, even if that bit does not otherwise include an umbrella clause. An independent right to FET might also catch anything that is arbitrary or discriminatory action that is not otherwise caught by national treatment or MFN, even if the bit does not otherwise have that non-discrimination, non-arbitrary clause. For these reasons, some arbitral tribunals have suggested that an independent right to FET is a catch-all right that makes a state responsible for any unfair treatment, even if that treatment falls a little short of being a violation of other bit rights. An independent FET clause could also catch any state action that violates an investor's, quote, legitimate expectations, close quote, and is for that reason alone unfair and inequitable. For some tribunals, legitimate expectations should be protected under FET, even if these were generated by a government's implicit or explicit oral or written statements or conduct, whether or not a state intended to actually commit itself, so long as such expectations were reasonably generated, see Mukula v. Romania. Some tribunals have even suggested that an investor could still win such a claim even if the investor fails to prove that it actually relied on a statement by a government to make its investment. It is small wonder, then, that left unchanged, the broad FET right contained in many treaties, such as the U.S.-Argentina bit, is the investor protection that is most likely to generate success for investor claimants. States have not always been happy about that and such outcomes, or the sheer unpredictability of FET claims. As the vagaries of FET have become clear in the case law, some states, including but not only the U.S., have decided to do something about it. The FET provision in the CETA is, uh, which is also found in the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, is a prominent example of an FET recalibration attempt. In Article 8, Period 10, Paragraph 2, of the CETA text says the following, quote, a party breaches the obligation of fair and equitable treatment if a measure or series of measures constitutes A, denial of justice in criminal, civil, or administrative proceedings, B, fundamental breach of due process, including a fundamental breach of transparency in judicial and administrative proceedings, C, manifest arbitrariness, D, targeted discrimination, or manifestly on, on manifestly wrongful grounds, such as gender, race, or religious belief, e, abusive treatment of investors, such as coercion, duress, and harassment, or f, a breach of any further elements of the fair and equitable treatment obligation that is adopted by the parties under the, that treaty's uh, ability to issue interpretive recommendations under the joint commission by the parties, the CETA Joint Commission for Decision. In the same Article 810, Paragraph 4, says the following, quote, when applying FET, a tribunal may take into account whether a party made specific representations to an investor to induce a covered investment that created a legitimate expectation and upon which the investor relied in deciding to make or maintain the covered investment, but that the party subsequently frustrated, close quote. 
Now, at a superficial level, the CETA text and the FET clause contained in the U.S. models of 2004 and 2012 that I discussed earlier uh, in my last lecture all seem to have the same goal. All three seem to want to reduce the scope of FET through denials of due process or denials of justice. But there are subtle differences between these FET clauses that might make all the difference in outcomes. The U.S. model FET text does not equate FET to denials of justice. It just says it includes denials as examples of the violation of the clause without saying that those are the only instances in which FET is violated. The CETA text seems intended to reduce FET to a far more precise list of offenses, namely those it lists, and I've just read, from A to F. The list of other kinds of FET offenses remains open under the CETA text under F, but only to the extent that the state parties to the CETA say so. The precise list of the five FET offenses at A through E seems motivated by a concern that customary denials of justice, like much of custom, is overly vague and reach too many types of state action. The CETA parties felt that they needed to give FET this precise content to avoid unfair surprise on both sides, for both investors and states. The CETA's drafters were probably motivated by some arbitral rulings that find that even if FET is equivalent to the international minimum standard of justice, that standard, including what constitutes a denial of justice, evolves and grows over time. Glamis Gold, VUS, a NAFTA case, suggested that given ever higher standards for what people, including human rights claimants, expect to receive by way of due process, what constitutes a denial of justice today is not necessarily the same as it was when, say, the Mexican-U.S. Claims Tribunal was examining the behavior of local courts back in Mexico in 1920s. If what violates the international minimum standard or constitutes a denial of justice is defined, as some tribunals say, by what shocks the juridical conscience, the glamorous tribunal seems to be saying that we're just a bit more easily shocked today. The need for clarity also motivates paragraph 4 of the CETA text. That part makes clear that to be protected, legitimate expectations require investors to actually rely to their detriment on government assurances. It also requires that those assurances be specific commitments made by a government in writing. So the TITA text is, though, an ex excellent example of why attempts like these to render an investment right more precise and therefore more narrow through treaty language and therefore reduce arbitral discretion in interpreting these rights, that these efforts may not work as intended. CETA's FET text may not significantly reduce the exposure host states have under FET. The text of the CETA that I've read still leaves considerable room for arbitral discretion and investors' lawyers' creativity. The CETA's Article 1810A, the first category, does not define the critical term denial of justice. It's B now raises questions about what constitutes a, quote, fundamental breach of due process or of transparency versus less fundamental ones. It's C fails to clarify what is manifest or what is arbitrary. It's D does not tell us who has the burden of proving that a state targeted anyone for discrimination 
and which other grounds, apart from those enumerated, might be included. And E fails to define any of its critical terms. What's abusive? What's coercion? What's duress? What's harassment? For these reasons, the CETA's version of FET may just change the way investor claimants argue their claims and the way arbitrators deploy their interpretive discretion, which continues. At this point, we'll stop and then continue with the second half of the lecture, picking up on full protection and security.